I would ask how you are, but <laughs> in light of the last few days, I'm guessing that you are feeling scared or angry or anybody just tired, you know, wherever you fall on the political spectrum. David Brooks, in his opinion column a few days ago, called Wednesday the day the fever broke in America. And I love that idea just because I love to plot the pain of the last week and recent memory into a narrative of healing and renewal and uh, to kind of fly in the face of the news cycle and social media. And I do hold out, like, in private a bit, a cautious optimism for the future of our country and our city. But I don't know if he's right or wrong. I pray he is right. I pray things get better. But I don't know if things will get better or get far worse. But I woke up this morning thinking about that line from Hebrews, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And to clarify, for those of you new to the New Testament, that is not referring to the United States of America, which if we are in the New Testament, it's through the metaphor of Babylon, all right, not of anything else. The kingdom that we are a part of is not even a kingdom, it's a democracy, and it can and it will be shaken, if not now, then later. It's just a matter of when, not if. But we are receiving not a democracy, but a kingdom with a king and it cannot be shaken. It is here now, and it is coming. And this last week is just yet another invitation. We've had many over the last year to recalibrate our hope, our ultimate hope. Not, not that we don't work and act for justice and all of that, but to recalibrate our ultimate hope over the horizon to the return of the king to make all things new. That doesn't take away the grief and the loss of recent memory, but it does put it in a whole new perspective. You know, I've said this to you a lot, so let me just play the broken record kind of angle again. If your highest value in life is to feel happy and safe and kind of a nice American or a former American up and to the right sense of upward mobility, then the last year has been a colossal disaster for all, pretty much all of us in the room, unless if you... I don't know, like work in the stock market or something like that. But if your highest value in life is to become a person of love and joy and peace in Jesus and in his kingdom, then the last few months, the last year has been, for most of us, at least if you are anywhere close to my age, I don't know your autobiography, but it has been, at least for me, the greatest opportunity in my lifetime to grow and to mature. But just living through any form of pain and suffering is not a guarantee that you come out the other side with more resilience and wisdom and detachment and love and compassion. Many people come out the other side just shattered or full of anger or rage or fear or carry trauma in their body. So how do we come out of 2020 said in faith? I feel like we're still in 2020. I feel like the calendar's a little off this year. Into whatever the next season is, not just for our nation, but for our church. And like there, the, there's still hope for us as a church in the future. How do we come out and, and let God do a deep work, not only of healing, but of renewal? in our soul, um, both that together and alone. That's kind of what I want to get into today. On that note, please turn your Bibles to Psalm 139 as we continue our teaching series on the 31 Days of Prayer initiative to start off the year. Psalm 139. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence. We welcome your presence. And with it, your rule, your reign, your kingdom. Said another way, right here, right now, we surrender. We yield to you. And trust that on the other side of death is life. On the other side of our cross is an empty tomb of freedom. We thank you, Jesus, that it is written in the New Testament, our life is hidden with Christ in God. That we are in you, Jesus, and you are in God. We don't feel that way today. Take us to that deep place inside each one of us who has the Holy Spirit, where our spirit is a vine in the branch of your spirit, where we're not even sure who's who anymore because we are in Christ and Christ is in God. For those who are here watching or with us in the journey or in the room who do not yet have the spirit of God, who have yet to open to the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We just invite your gentle wind to come and whisper to every heart and mind. Amen. Psalm 139. For the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. But if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. 
Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Read or pray verse 23 and 24 with me out loud one more time. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I recently read an article on Beethoven that I can't stop thinking about. I was aware that music critics consider Beethoven one of the great musicians of all time because he changed the course of music history and all of that. I was aware that he went deaf later in life and wrote his famous Fifth Symphony with his you know, ear to the piano to hear the vib- or feel the vibrations, dun-dun-dun-dun, or whatever. Thank you, Beethoven. But I always assumed that he went deaf later in life and that he wrote all of his best music when he was young. In fact, the exact opposite is true. He went deaf in his 20s, and all of his best music was in the last decade of his life. Music historians tell us that prior to losing his hearing, he was a well-known performer. He was a genius from day one, but his music sounded like everybody else. In particular, like his teacher, Joseph Haydn. But something happened when he tuned out the sound of the world and of the day. Arthur Brooks, in a great piece on Beethoven, writes, quote, It seems a mystery that Beethoven became more original and brilliant as a composer in inverse proportion to his ability to hear his own and others' music. But maybe it isn't so surprising. As his hearing deteriorated, he was less influenced by the prevailing compositional fashions and more by the musical structures forming inside his own head. Deafness freed Beethoven as a composer because he no longer had society's soundtrack in his ears. There is a kind of secret law to the universe. The more time we spend in quiet, and in reflection with God, the more original we become, the more our true self, in the best sense of that term, not the Portland sense, the best sense of that term, can come forth. By that I mean the self that the Spirit is forming us to be in Christ. And the more time that we spend in noise, and in digital distraction, and in the social media echo chamber, and the political war online, and in a life of hurry and speed and chronic exhaustion and busyness, the more we live by society's soundtrack, the more we think and feel and live and vote and yell and post and make moral judgments just like everybody else. Whether we gravitate to the left or to the right, we come across just like the mass mind of humanity. The more Beethoven's life became one of quiet reflection, the more he actually had something to say to the world. And I think something like what happened to Beethoven happened to another brilliant composer before him, not a German, but a Hebrew, David, the songwriter who is behind much of around one-third of the music book that we call Psalms. A psalm, if you're new to the Bible, is a Hebrew word just meaning a song, or in particular, a sacred song. And one of the psalms that David composed is still with us, and we are still reading it, not in our church tradition, but in other 
other church traditions, we are still singing it as followers of Jesus, and that is Psalm 139. Notice just a few things. We could spend hours in Psalm 139. Notice just a few things if you're taking notes. One, notice how aware David is that God is all around him and always with him. Verse seven, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Two, notice how aware David is that God is leading him and guiding him even through the most dark and scary seasons in the way everlasting. Verse 10, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Notice that level of trusting God. Notice number three, how aware David is that he is fearfully and wonderfully made and an object of God's loving attention. Verse 13, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You ever said that? You ever said that to the mirror? I'm 40 and I'm wearing COVID-19 in all sorts of ways. I have not said that to mirror in a long time. But I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and so are you. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts. Do you feel that way about the thoughts of God? Do you realize that many of God's thoughts are about you? Not just you, but some are. Verse or number four, notice how aware David is of his destiny and God's future. I love verse 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Can you imagine that sense of destiny over your future? No matter your story, no matter your birth story, whoever your mom was, if you don't even know who she was, that level of destiny before you were anything, before you were even in your mother's womb, you were in the mind of God as a soul with a future in his kingdom. And verse number five, notice how from that place, David has an outlet to discharge all of his anger and his anxiety over the state of the world. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them and I count them my enemies. I love his honesty. Please note, this is not scripture teaching us it's okay to hate. It's scripture teaching us to pray. We all have hate in our hearts. Some of us are just more honest about it than others. And some of us have better self-discipline when it comes to Instagram, but we all have it in our heart. The question is, what do we do with it? Do we storm the Capitol and scream from the dais? Do we go on social media and just rant our contempt at people that we disagree with because we are right and they are wrong? Or do we pray and vent all of our pain to God? He goes on, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. David has a place deep inside his body even below that in his soul, where his spirit is one with God's spirit, and he is free in that place of loving compassion to release all of his emotions with no filter, the good and the bad and the ugly, over to God, because God can take it, and God can transform it. Now, I just want you to pause for a minute, and feel free to close your eyes if you want, 
And I just want you to consider whether or not you are living a Psalm 139 kind of life. Whether or not the poem we just read is an accurate portrayal of your life before God. If we are honest, um, for many of us, our felt experience is the exact opposite of that of David, right? Instead of feeling like God is all around us and always with us, we feel far from God and a bit on our own in a secular age. Instead of feeling like God is leading and guiding us, even through the most dark and scary seasons, we feel kind of left to chart our own course, and we feel in the dark, and a lot of us just live with fear. Instead of feeling like we are fearfully and wonderfully made and an object of God's loving attention, we feel an insecure identity, more fragile than ever in the postmodern era, and many of us live with an undercurrent of shame. Instead of feeling a great hope for our destiny in God's future, uh, that our days are ordained before God, we feel our life is our own based on our own meritocracy or our technique or our perfection, and our future is uncertain and open. Instead of living with a healthy outlet for our anger and anxiety, we often just leak our emotional pain all over the place. If you resonate more with that second list than the first, Welcome to church. <laughs> you are in very good company here. Yes, we follow Jesus, but that does not mean we all have our act together. I do not. The question is, how do we cross over to a Psalm 139 kind of life? Well, the apex of the psalm is verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The word test is bahan in Hebrew. It was a word used for testing metals by melting to draw out the impurities and refine the gold, the best of the metal. A word picture used all through the library of scripture for what is happening to you and me when we come before God in prayer. One lexicon for Bahan has, quote, to test, try, probe, examine, i.e., to try to test the genuineness of an object by examination, which is why some translations have examine me and know my anxious thoughts. Now, how do we do this? The short answer, of course, is through prayer. But did you know there actually is a prayer from the church tradition called the Prayer of Examine? As you know, we're running an initiative called 31 Days of Prayer. To clarify, we plan to continue to pray on February 1st. It's not like we pray for 31 days and then the rest of the year you have off, right? Um, but we are just in a a season where we're all together kind of praying out 2020, can I get a witness, and praying in 2021, praying for the kind of church we want to be, for the peace and prosperity of our nation and of our city in it, praying for our church as we get ready to start to come back together. It, it will be slow, it will be fits and starts, but we're right now hard at work to start to come back together, I think sometime in March, and at least a little bit of a capacity. We're praying for that. What does it look like to start to come back together as a church. And to start the year, we're praying every day for 31 days, except on Saturday, here in our new building. You're welcome to come. Space is limited, so sign up online. But we're also calling on you to pray three times a day, to pray a psalm in the morning, like the one we just read, the Lord's Prayer at noon. You can do that in two minutes, take a walk around the block or whatever, and the examine 
in the evening. Now, a little background on the prayer of examine. The examine comes to us from Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order and what has come to be called Ignatian spirituality based on his life. Before Ignatian, Ignatius was the founder of Ignatius spirituality, he, is, he was a wealthy secular playboy who was injured in battle and ended up at home with his parents in bed for nine straight months of recovery. As he was lying in bed with no prior kind of background in God for nine months with no Wi-Fi connection or DVD player. Can you imagine the last year without Netflix? I just, I shudder to even think, right? He began to reflect on his life and before falling asleep each night to reflect on his day and, and in particular on what brought him consolation was the language he used. And by that he meant a sense of happiness and nearness to God, the God that he was discovering, and what brought him desolation, um, a feeling of sadness, a kind of melancholy of spirit, and a sense of farness from God. His daily reflection became the lodestone of his spirituality. To this day, the theme of Jesuit spirituality is, quote, finding God in all things. And for Ignatius and the Jesuits, finding God in all things is all about noticing, about noticing where God is present and active in your day, in your week, in your past, in your present, in your future. And Ignatius discovered just through prayer that it's easier to notice God in your past than in your present. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, as the saying goes. But as we grow in our capacity to notice God in our past, we become more adept at noticing God in our present. The way you do that, if you're a Jesuit, is through the prayer of examine, which is a daily habit, is the way it was designed by Ignatius. You know, every church tradition has kind of an anchor spiritual discipline. So for the very wide kind of stream of the church that we're a part of, it's a morning quiet time of scripture and in prayer. If you're a Roman Catholic, it's daily mass. If you are a Jesuit, it is the prayer of examine. Ignatius would say, if you only have 15 minutes a day to give over to any kind of spiritual discipline or dedicated time to God, use the 15 minutes for the prayer of examine. That's not right or wrong, that's just his opinion. But it's that much of an anchor practice for him. The Jesuit writer James Martin puts it this way, finding God in your examine makes you more likely to look for him during the day. You become more aware of where God was and where God is. Gradually you realize that God is active every moment of the day. Finding God by looking behind you makes it easier to see God right in front of you. Now, what exactly is the examine? Well, the full title is, if you want to be really precise, is the examine of conscience or the examine of consciousness. The original Spanish word has both connotations. And there's an interesting link there between how conscious we are, of our, in particular of our sin, and our level of consciousness how aware we are of self, life, world, of reality. Most people today just call it by the shorthand of the examine. It's a form of prayer in which you examine your day with God by the Spirit in your mind, in particular just searching for signs of God's presence, his activity, and his love. David Fleming, in his excellent little book, which you can read in about 30 minutes, What is Ignatian Spirituality? My wife just read it. Was it any good, love? Did you? Was it worth it? It was good. Ah, she gave you a B minus, maybe. I don't know. 
defines the examine as a way of discern <laughs> a way of discerning the presence of God by reflecting on our daily experience. He writes the the examine is an indispensable tool, and that's all it is, to detect God's presence and discern his will through close attention to the subtle interior movements of God's spirit. It shows us how to look back on our lives, to sift through our memories in order to see the way God has been dealing with us over the years. And there are five basic movements to the examine. Give thanks, pray for light, review, repent, renew. A short word on each. First, you give thanks for, in Ignatius' language, God's benefits. I think of that line from Psalm 103, a favorite of mine. Forget not all of his benefits. We, are, we humans are prone to a kind of spiritual amnesia. Am I right? Or just any kind of amnesia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's so easy in the hurry of the day and the stress of life to forget all of God's benefits, in particular with the dark cloud of the news cycle and social media over our mind. And Ignatius means benefits in a wide and expansive way from the presence and the peace of the Spirit of God, not only around you, but in you, and the fact that you are living in the kingdom of God with Jesus and adopted into the family of God as a son or daughter of the Father and in a family, to just a ray of sunshine on a winter day or a 10-minute break in the rain to take a walk or step outside for a moment or just a good sandwich for lunch or an unexpected call from a friend. God's benefits. And in the exam, it's not just you know, making a list of things you're grateful for. That's fantastic. But it's giving thanks to God in prayer. It's God with your mind at God and your spirit one with God's spirit. God, thank you that I woke up dry this morning and warm-ish, and safe, and well-fed. Thank you that you're with me, that I'm not alone, that our church is still together, on and on and on. And through movement one, through gratitude, we are learning, not just in our mind, not just head knowledge, but in our body itself, and in our our neurology, and our, our musculature, and our muscle memory, we are learning a few things. One, we're learning to let go to shift our interior will from grasping for the illusion of control, which is futile, and the cause of great harm in the world, to giving thanks for life as a gift that we receive in welcome and surrender. Second, we're learning to see how good our life actually is, not the life the news pundits and politicians say we have, in an attempt to stoke our anger or anxiety or angst in order to make us a soldier in their army, or the life the digital marketing departments say we need to have in order to make money off of us, but the life we actually have. Not the life we wish we had or feel we deserve to have or plan to have in six months or six years, but the life we actually have, not tomorrow, but today. Not the utopia of fantasy, but the goodness of reality. And third, we are learning to slow down and savor the goodness of reality with God. Become more and more, a little bit at each time, present to the moment, grounded in our body, and compassionate attention to the person in front of us. You can't do the examine quick, and that's one of the things I love about it. You can pray fast, or you can connect with God. Pick one. And I love that. 
The examine is a spiritual discipline of slowing down by which we are learning to move at what Kusuke Koyama called the speed of love and to savor and enjoy and delight in God's benefits. That's movement one. Second, you pray for light. That's language from Dorothy Day who would pray the examine every single night. She actually said beg for light. What she meant was beg the Spirit of God to help you to open up your mind to see reality clearly. If there's anything we know about human beings, it's that we do not perceive reality as it actually is. We see through a glass darkly, as Paul puts it in the New Testament, with error, bias, spotlighting, demonic lies that cloud our vision, emotional manipulation. To pray for light is to pray for the spirit and truth of God to illuminate reality, to help us see our life and our church and our city and our world with God's eyes clearly and undistorted by the lies of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This movement just takes, just take, this one just takes a moment. You just ask God to fill you with the spirit, open your mind and imagination and to block, to silence the voice of the enemy, to hide you in the spirit for the next few minutes. Third, you review your day. Think of this kind of like a short movie was made on like, you know, your iPhone on Apple, whatever, playing, and that little short film is just playing in your mind's eye. Push play and watch it from your alarm clock, which was horrible this morning, to your exam. It's like, it's still dark. It's always still dark. I don't care how late I sleep in, it's still dark, right? From the moment you woke up until the moment in time. And you just notice, with no judgment, just notice, where, what, where was I happy? What made me happy? Where was I sad? What made me sad? Where was I anxious? What compulsive thoughts did I obsess over? What, what thoughts did I come back to again and again and again? What was my distraction that day? Where did those thoughts take me? What, emotional, what was the emotional fallout, good or bad, of those thoughts? How did I spend my time or my money? What did I give my attention to? What, what, was I, what was I trying to accomplish with my day? What were the good moments? What were the wins? What were the bad moments? What felt like a failure? Above all, we ask, where did I feel close to God? Where did I notice God's presence with me? Or where did I feel far away? Where did I turn away from God and his love? Where was I a conduit? The other major question you want to ask is, where was I living in the flow of the Trinitarian community of self-giving love? And where was I a conduit for that love? And where was I out of the flow, out of sync? I was a blockage or I was a saboteur. I was anything but a conduit for agape and compassion. You know, we learn, so this is not just about your emotions, but we learn so much from our emotions. Our emotions are our teachers, and they're not always right, but they always have something interesting to say. In particular, you know, we learn so much from our anger or anxiety because they reveal to us our attachments. We tend to feel anger when we don't get what we want, and we tend to feel anxiety when we are scared that there's a chance we will not get what we want. Either way, anger and anxiety are a form of self-revelation of what it is that we want, or in more Christian language, what it is that we worship, what it is that is our, our God at some level, our ultimate. And this is a gift because often we find that what we're angry and anxious about does not go by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
goes by the name of upper mobility or peace and security or Western democracy or my career or my sexuality or I'm right or my vindication or my reputation or my body or you fill in the blank. Any We could make a list of hundreds of examples. Our anger and anxiety reveal to us our attachments. And there's no better place to explore the hard truth of our attachments that hold us captive, that hold us in pain and suffering far beyond what we need. You know, psychologists define neurosis as those, neurotic people as those who suffer more than they need to. We all need to suffer a little bit, this side of resurrection, but most of us suffer a lot more than we need to, myself included. Man, in prayer, we begin to realize our attachments that cause us to suffer far more than we need to. So in review, you just take, again, this is you know 30 seconds, two, three minutes. You just take a few moments to review your day. And then four, you repent. There, I, and I have no apology here. I'm gonna use the word repent. I'm gonna follow it up with the word sin, and I'm not even gonna explain myself. There's no, there's, I feel like the line between the church and the world is so clear this year, I'm just over it. I'm like, nuance, ah, well, I don't have time for that. But there's, there is, my point is, said in jest, there's no way to review your day and not find sin in it. And that is a good thing. That is God coming to you in love. Ignatius said, one of the things you pray for light for is to, in his language, quote, know my sins. Have you ever prayed that? God, help me to know my sins. Most of us spend a lot more time saying, God, help me to not feel bad about my sins. And there's a place for that. But he would actually pray, and maybe this was because he was so full of the love of God, the compassion of God. God, help me to know my sins. You ever prayed that? Have you ever prayed that every single day? God, help me to know my sins. Help me to notice not just your benefits, but where I took your benefits and ran. Where I became my own God, my own source of goodness, of good, of evil, of provision, of future, of decision-making, of whatever. Where, God, did I turn away from your love and in doing so from that deep center of peace and serenity, that holy center where spirit calls to spirit, where I am in Christ. And we ask God to, illum- to ask God to illuminate your sin means coming to see ourselves as we actually are under the loving gaze of Trinitarian compassion. And those two things have to go together, ruthless self-awareness and the overwhelming sense of the compassion of God. If you hold one without the other, you are destined to distortion of your being. You have to hold the two together. Of course, this runs counter to the self-esteem movement that our generation was raised on. You know, the steady mantra of you're good, you're beautiful, you're a boss just the way you are. Don't let anybody tell you different. Just accept yourself the way you are. You are a boss, speak your truth, you do you. But deep down, we know that this is, this is PR, this is marketing, This is self-denial. It's a lie. It's a defense mechanism to hold at bay our fear and our shame. Our fear that we are bad, that we are unlovable, that we are beyond the pale. And self-esteem doesn't work. It's not that it's bad. It just doesn't really work because we all know, even if we don't let it into our prefrontal cortex of awareness, we all know that we're broke that at least part of us is broke and is bent in the wrong direction and run by fear, by ego, by greed, 
by a sense of illusion and fantasy and a grasping for control. If you don't know that yet, you will. It will come to you, the easy way or the hard way. We need to be saved. We all know this at some primal level. Wherever we need to be saved, we need to be healed, we need to be made whole, we need to be set free by something or someone outside ourselves. And, and the way of Jesus would say, the gospel of Jesus would say, we as a community would say, it is not by a politician or a party or a piece of legislation or a mindfulness app or a pill or a form of therapy or a book or a new technique or the like Weimhoff breathing thing. All of that is great. I'm not saying any of that doesn't matter. It's all good stuff. But we need to be set free, set right by someone and something beyond the human horizon. Man has ruined his own soul. He cannot save it. And the good news of Jesus is that we have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved by Jesus, the king and the kingdom. And salvation starts not with the illusion of self-esteem, but with the honesty of reality. All of Christian spirituality at some level is about coming to face reality with peace, being able to hold reality of who you actually are, what life actually is, what America actually is, before your mind with no fantasy, no illusion, no spin, no PR, and with peace, without fear, because perfect love casts out fear. Salvation starts with naming our sin under the loving gaze of God. I've been following for a while now the work of Lori Santos. She's a cognitive scientist and professor at Yale. In a recent podcast, um, she made the point that self-esteem is dangerous, and actually the scientific community has come full circle back from what they said not that long ago. And she made the point that it's dangerous because if your narrative by which you feel good about yourself is, I'm good, I'm the best, I'm a winner, I'm special, I'm unique, don't let anybody tell me different, then your entire sense of self is then tied to performance. And when you do good or you are successful, you feel good about yourself and you tend to be arrogant. But when you don't do good or you aren't successful or you feel like a failure, you feel like you are a wreck. So she advocated for instead what she called self-compassion, that when you do bad or you mess up or you feel bad about yourself, rather than give yourself some lie, no, I'm really awesome, I'm great, don't let anybody, rather you just say, I'm human, and to be human is to be broke, and that's just part of the human condition. And that's okay, I, I agree with that, I think that's good advice, but I would say a thousand times better than self-compassion is God's compassion is to lay your soul as it actually is bare before the loving attention of the God whose defining character trait, if you've read Exodus 34, whose baseline emotional disposition, and it is an emotional world, unlike love in the New Testament, which is more of a will-based word, compassion is an emotional word. In Hebrew, it has the idea of the way that a mother or a father feels about an infant child his baseline emotional disposition toward you and me is compassion. Confession is naming that reality. It's naming what is. It's speaking truth, Means, meaning we not only name how bad our sin is, but how good God's love is. And this is hard to do. Like as a parent, one of the most difficult things to teach my three wonderful kids over here is the simple act of how to apologize well. It is really hard to teach that and how to apologize without explanation. 
how to just say, and how to actually say what you did, not just, sorry, but I'm sorry for, and then you fill in the blank with a specific detail. I'm sorry that I pushed you off the top of the bunk bed. You know, well, just a hypothetical scenario, Jude, right? You know, whatever. Not to call you out, that was like three days ago, I know, right? You know, but whatever. Like, this runs counter to the self-deception and the echo chamber of illusion that most of us call home. But we will never become forgiving or loving people until we first learn to confess our sin to God and receive his love and his forgiveness. The most judgmental, contemptuous, cruel people you know, whether it is a nasty religious fundamentalist who claims the name Christian on the right or a pretentious millennial progressive on Instagram on the left, are also not only the most arrogant and self-righteous and in denial people you know, but often the most self-hating and perfectionist and shame-based people you know. There is a reciprocal relationship between our capacity to hold our sin before God's love and our capacity to hold another person's sin in compassion. Sometimes part of movement four is we need to not only repent to God, but repent to others. We need to go pick up the phone or write an apology note. How cool would it be if like right around sundown every day in Portland, which is like, you know, the middle of the afternoon right now, but whatever, maybe sundown in, in summer and, you know, later in the night in Portland, if there was just a flood of Bridgetown people calling each other to apologize for minor infractions because we were doing life together and all of us are broke. I'd much rather be a part of a church that was quick to repent than a church that was slow to sin. The latter isn't an option for most of us. The former is an option for all of us. Finally, the last moment, I'm almost done, is to renew. You think of changes you want to make tomorrow, in particular sins you want to avoid, and you renew your heart's desire to take up your cross and follow Jesus. You just renew your, uh, your pledge to follow, to apprentice under Jesus. And then you end by asking for God's grace for the day ahead. Grace is best defined, not, I don't mean grace how it's used in American evangelicalism, which I think is incorrect. I mean grace as it's used by Paul and the writers of the New Testament. Gordon Fee defines it as God's empowering presence. It is a God-given capacity from the Spirit of God that we don't have without the Spirit to be who we are called to be and do what we are called to do. Without Jesus, Jesus himself said, without me, you can do nothing. Our only hope is grace. Our only hope is to abide in the vine. Our only hope is a power beyond us and a peace beyond us. So you end, as always, with surrender to love. This is always the end to prayer, which is really just the beginning. As David Fleming put it, you pray for the grace to be more totally available to God who loves you so totally. Now, our practice for the week ahead is all up at bridgetown.church communities under the community guides. Thank you to Colin and to Gavin. Um, every, just to reiterate what we say all the time, everything we do here is invitational. Our goal as leaders is to do all we can to serve you well in your spiritual journey, to help you and aid you in your quest to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and do what he did. That is who we are. That's what we are as a church. We're not something else. But everything we do is invitational. Um, this week's practice to that end is to pray the examine, ideally every night 
but feel free to do it twice a day or twice in the week or just on the Sabbath. A few coaching points. One, there's no right way to pray the examine, um, just like there's no right way to pray. There's a few of those basic ingredients you wanna get in, gratitude, reflection, confession of sin, pray for grace, but do it however you want. Um, none are right or wrong, just do whatever brings you closer to God. Second, the examine is hard, start small, and don't get discouraged. I hesitate to say this, but I find the examine very good, but very hard to do. It's one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines for me. Um, I think it's because it's at the end of the day, my mind is like shot. My focus is gone and like a form of like contemplative prayer. It's, you know, like without coffee and at the end of the day and I'm late for dinner, it's just hard. I pretty much, in all honesty, never miss my morning quiet time. I miss the examine more often than not. Um, any of you read, so the point there is just start small and don't beat yourself up. Be really easy and gentle with yourself and start where you are, right? Any of you read um, B.J. Fogg's book, Tiny Habits? A number of people are saying it's even better than James Clear's Atomic Habits. He's the founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford and his contribution is that with habits, the key is to start really small. Like his opening example is if you want to start flossing your teeth on a regular basis, anybody? Start by flossing one tooth at a time. Just every night before you go to bed, one tooth. Literally, he's not joking. One tooth and then you just smile. I started doing it. It's working awesome. I'm like on four teeth a night at this point. My dentist is going to love me, right? And like, it's amazing. Like that's what a wreck I am as a human being. I literally have to start by flossing one tooth and work my way up to the top or something, you know? But if you apply that thinking to the examine, man, if it's too much to take 15 minutes of God and, you know, 15 minutes with God and give thanks and beg for light and review, repent, or what's the other R? I don't remember. If that's too much, just when you fall into bed at night, before you close your eyes, just thank God for two or three things that happened that day with specificity. If that's where you're at, just start there where you are, not where you feel some sense of idealization or you should be. As we like to say, practice, not performance. And last, um, you can do this alone, but also for those of you with a family or a roommate, you can actually do this together. We did it just a few nights ago around the dinner table. You can light a little candle and do a simplified version, even if your kids are really little, like we just did. My kids aren't really little, but we did. What do we do, kids? We did, what are you grateful for? What's something that happened today that you're grateful? Then we did, where was a moment today that you felt close to God? And then we had a quiet moment to confess sin to God. And then does anybody want to apologize to each other? And all of us except my wife had something to apologize for, you know? I mean, it was actually a really beautiful moment to kind of end the day by saying, I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for, that's the Comer household, right? I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for that. To end, you know, a few years ago, I sat through a lecture with an expert on Ignatian spirituality, and he made a fascinating point. He said, we don't change from experience. We change when we reflect on our experience. Think about our working theory of change and the role that experience, in particular suffering, plays in our growth and maturity. That was an interesting insight to me. Suffering alone or experience alone, good or bad, is not enough. You have to take time to reflect on your experience. I think there is more, that's not an absolute scientific or biblical statement, but I think there's more than a little truth in that statement. We are learning from experts on trauma that when we have an experience that is painful, major or minor, if we can make meaning of it through loving relationship, if we can find somebody to hold us and help us to discharge the pain, we can move on with little to no long-term effect on our spirit. 
But if we can't, whether we are two or 20, if we disassociate or we live in denial or are isolated from loving relationship, then the memory of it, again, major or minor, lives on in our body at a subconscious level often, and it wreaks havoc in every relationship we attend to. 2020 was traumatic for many of us, some more than others, but for pretty much all of us, at least for us as a nation. A key task of 2021 is the healing of trauma for our nation, for Bridgetown Church, for your life, and for mine, but we don't self-heal. You will not heal by reading a book about trauma. You will not heal through a mindfulness app. I read lots of books. I'm just about to start a new mindfulness app. One of them is gonna solve all my problems in life and make me a very happy person. I haven't figured out the right one yet, but I'm getting close, you know? I'm not against any of that stuff is what I'm saying. We heal through loving relationship, first with God in prayer, and second with the people of God in community. But like all spiritual disciplines, it's not a technique. We don't do the right technique or formula or do the exam in just the right order or whatever, and then, ah, great, now we're good. We're not in control. That's one of the main things we should learn from the spiritual disciplines. When they don't go well, that's a gift. It's God's loving way of teaching you that you're not in control of your relationship with God. You're not in control of your healing. What's the first thing a patient has to learn? You're in the charge of the doctor. Right? We all know the quip about doctors who make the worst patients. Often disciples of Jesus make the worst people to be healed and saved because we think we know better than God. And we have our agenda, we have our timeline, we have our dun, 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 dun. God is the physician of the soul. We're the one who's broke. And we just set our life before God. God, here's 15 minutes of my day. I don't know if I'll feel close to you in this or my mind will just wander all over the place and I'll go finish the crown afterwards. I don't know. But either way, I give this time to you. I just set my life before you as an offering. Here's my body. Literally, here is my body and all that comes with it. I set it before you. May God give us the grace to be present to the moment. What Jean-Pierre de Cassade, a 17th century Jesuit, called the sacrament of the present moment. He's a 17th century Catholic. Like We don't think that way. A sacrament is a very big deal. There are two sacraments. If there, there's a right answer to that question. There are two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. But he said, actually, no, there's a third. It's the present moment. It's so hard. The simple act of presence is the most difficult thing, Right? Anybody watch Soul over the Christmas break? I love, um, I, I, love that, I love that movie, I love that director, he's a believer. And there was that scene, I'm not much of a crier, and I just broke down on Christmas night with my children on both sides of the guy, I just started crying, where he just wakes up to realize how good his like ordinary, mundane letdown of a life actually is. The wonder, the awe, the, the things that we walk by every day. There's something of that in prayer. It's been said that the highest form of spirituality, that the goal of spirituality is presence, and the highest form of spirituality is just pure presence. It's a little bit too universalist for my taste, but what I agree with with that is that the more present we are to the moment, the more grounded in our body, the more connected to the breath, not just the breath in our body, but the, the ruach, the pneuma, the spirit of God, the more open we are to love, the more grateful, the less we grasp, the more we give thanks, the more we live in the kingdom of God with Jesus.
the more we become people of agape. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about.